0: Welcome again to another Baywa RE Solar Town Hall. It's great to be back with our solar community. And this week we're talking about codes and compliance. What are the pressing questions you have? We'll cover uh, storage, creation of codes, working with your local AHJs. Um, And yeah, so we're really excited for a great group of guests today. Uh, We do hope all of you in Northern California are doing okay. It's a rough time. Uh, with the fire season right now, so we're sending you all our best thoughts. Um, a few quick announcements before we get started. Uh, we had an exciting announcement last week. We've launched a new partnership uh, partnership with Generac, and we'll be offering their storage products. If you want to learn more about uh, Generac's PowerCell battery system, how to sell it, install it, ask any questions, uh, you can come to that webinar. It's going to be on September 3rd. And Jessica is going to share all the links uh, now in, in the chat um, or the Q&A. And then if you want to learn more about financing through BEWA, um, we know it can be a challenging time to start a new process in your company, but Rachel Shapira, the Director of Financing at Baywa, um, she's put a product together that's really easy um, to get started with financing uh, with just one bill to pay. It's called the Split Pay Program, uh, and it's in partnership with Sunlight Financial. Um, So you could sign up for that webinar as well. And then this Friday, um, as always after the town hall, we've got a mindfulness session. And that's at 830am Pacific. If you want to drop in and practice a little mindfulness, we'd love to have you. So um, first off, I have to admit that this topic is a little bit of a mystery for me. um, And I still feel like I'm out of my skis a bit, so forgive me if uh, in this codes and compliance discussion I use the wrong terminology or numbers, but that's why we've asked our all-star guests to come on today. So with that, I'd like to start bringing them up. Um, From Mayfield Renewables, we have Ryan Mayfield. And Ryan is launching a new live Q&A series, Ask Me Field Anything. Um, and there's uh, another one tomorrow, I believe. Um, and you could submit your co- code design questions and other technical questions. So uh, welcome, Ryan. Great to have you for the first time. on our show
1: Hall. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: And we also have Rebecca Wren. She is now a solar engineer at Airbnb. And before that, she was a, a She was at the wonderful uh, solar training organization, SEI. She's joining us from, I believe, North Carolina in the woods somewhere, undisclosed location. Thank you for (laughs) joining us today, Rebecca. We also have Matt Pace. Uh, Matt's a retired captain of the San Jose Fire Department. He uh, was president of the Energy Response Solutions that focused on training uh, fire and code officials. And now he's an advisor at the Pacific Northeast National Laboratory in their battery management materials uh, division. So welcome, Matt. Thank you for coming on for the first time. Thank you. And on the contractor side of things, we have Vaughn Woodruff, the CEO of InSource Renewables. In, uh, oh, I'm not going to disclose his location. It's, it's actually part of our trivia. Oh, he took it off. Okay. Well, if he brings it back up, we have a trivia question related to Vaughn. Uh, but thanks for joining us again, Vaughn. Great to see you.
2: Thanks for having us, Tom. I'll flip it around and get it set up for you.
0: All right, cool. So we should mention that that Matt, Ryan, Vaughn, um, and Rebecca have all been long-term members of, of various code-making bodies. And, and they are the experts that are going to answer your questions today. Um, but before we get to the first question, um, at the beginning, if you missed it, we, we have some trivia. Um, and so the first question was, and we can we can test our guests' knowledge of Egyptology as well as codes, um, but who is the ancient Egyptian deity of the sun? And feel free to to shout it out, guests, if anybody knows it. But it is Ra. Ra is the sun god of the ancient Egyptians, uh, and is depicted with the face of a falcon. Um, so, real quick, um, we're going to talk. Uh, this is the agenda today. We're going to talk broadly about the NEC. Then we're going to talk about rapid shutdown, working with AHJs, products and manufacturers, storage. Um, and who is writing the code and how to get involved. Uh, and then we'll wrap it up with some recommendations from our guests on how to streamline your install process as well. So um, I'd like to start off with the broad question. Um, when it comes to the National Electric Code, the NEC, what, where is it helping solar contractors and where is it hurting them? And maybe Rebecca, we'll kick it off with you uh, and then, then we'll kick it around a bit. Um, so yeah, Rebecca, why don't you kick us off?
3: Yeah, so that's a a really good question. I think that maybe clearly the intention of the NEC is to protect people and property. And it's a safety code. It's not a code that was designed for building low-cost systems necessarily or efficient systems necessarily. And so I think that there's always going to be a bit of a, you know, controversy between national electrical code standards and what might be the lowest cost installation. and But I think that everyone who is involved in the code making process is very aware of that. And while code changes are always going to be focused on increasing safety, there's also you know a lot of awareness that we don't want to necessarily always be increasing cost when we increase safety. And so I think that um, a lot of times when installers read the newly revised code and there are additions or amendments that they find upsetting, I think a lot of times that boils down to where the code is increasing cost, but I think that also it opens up a lot of room for innovation in terms of new products and new installation methods that can do both things at once, increase safety and decrease cost. Um, And I do think that in the last few code cycles that we have seen some you know, simplification of 690, Article 690, Article 705, where I think we are working more closely with manufacturers and installation partners trying to get those voices heard in the code-making process so that, you know, we're not always just increasing cost.
0: Right. Anyone want to jump in there? Ryan, Matt, Vaughn? What's, what's working? What's not working? How are the sol- solar contractors being supported and how are they being, you know, challenged or, or potentially hurt?
4: I might I might also just add that often change is painful at first until you develop your systems and understand um, that it's not necessarily as disruptive as it might have originally looked and I, I guess one example I would put up is that um, you know prior to a lot of the current best practices and codes and standards. Um, you know, those of you who've been around for a long time, uh, modules were wired together with wire nuts and conduit between modules, all right? Um, and then it evolved to multiple hundreds of zip ties on a residential system. So those are a couple examples where, you know, you know, MC4 style connectors and, and uh, clips on modules have actually increased the speed of installation and decreased costs. So one perspective there. Vaughn,
0: mm-hmm. bon, did you want to jump in?
2: Sure. Um, yeah, and thanks for having me. Um, you know, is kind of on the ground, having been on both sides of this. So my, so a lot of my code experience isn't in the PV world; it's in the solar water heating world, uh, where I sat on the Uniform Solar Energy Code, uh, worked with standards with IREC and and, uh, IATMO, um, and and been able to see both sides. Kind of the need, uh, obviously, from a quality and safety, as, as Rebecca and Matthew have talked about. And then just kind of as it hits the ground, some of the impacts it has um, coming from that ancient solar water heating world. I remember doing a training in New York and there was a sun power training going on next door uh, and the folks who were attending were coming out kind of chuckling at the maintenance heavy technology that we were working on, which was solar water heating, which was perceived to see be pretty maintenance heavy. And I would say that the code changes that have happened over the last few cycles Uh, I think the inverter manufacturers have had a really hard time catching up and doing it with quality. We've seen a really big decrease. Some of the companies that we went to as the gold standard, uh, you know, we're out servicing those systems quite a bit. Uh, You know, we work with a company that in Maine had a really bad reputation. Uh, They increased theirs slightly as everyone else's went down and switched our product um, selection as well. So um, yeah, there's definitely, yeah, it's definitely a challenge on both sides of that, like finding codes that are applicable especially in solar water heating where there's a lot of geographic consideration too that might be different. Um, looking at that in the PV world where things are a bit more uniform, I think that we've had, we've just seen, uh, yeah, th- there are some challenges. It's important that, that, you know, the participation and the perspectives are incorporated into that. And I think that a lot as Rebecca and Ryan and Matthew will go, there's a, there are a lot of pathways for that type of participation.
0: Yeah. And we'll talk more about the manufacturer side of things as well. Ryan, did you want to jump in there?
2: Yeah, just the one
1: thing I was going to add is, you know, PV, you know, Article 690, we're in the special equipment section of the NEC. And we do have, we as an industry have, you know, a lot of allowances. Uh, And so, uh, as the others have already pointed out, change is hard. Um, And then the perception of changes being more costly is difficult. Rapid shutdown probably being one of the biggest pain points we have seen in the past few code cycles, uh, just in terms of getting the adoption. But the other flip side of that is, you know, we're doing things, you know, Matthew made a great point, we're doing some things that electrical contractors otherwise don't do. We You don't see 600 volt DC wiring in free air anywhere else. And so uh, we do have you know these allowances if you will uh, and so i think it's important to realize that with pv being the, the evolving technology that it is that we don't fit into that mold and so applying code can be difficult uh, but we do get we do get it on both sides i would mm-hmm. say
0: mm-hmm. great well you you kind of gave me my transition there into rapid shutdown why don't Why don't we stick with you um and talk about you know what are the best practices and, and these are all audience questions by the way and that, that have come in beforehand. And feel free, audience members, to, to throw your questions uh, for our guests in the Q&A. And our guests can interact with you there as well and answer questions as we go. But yeah, Ryan, what are the, the best practices for rapid shutdown compliance when adding to existing PV systems that were installed without an RSS?
1: Yeah, and this one is actually somewhat of a near and dear to my heart question. This might have come from somebody in Oregon, because this is something that is uh, being attempted to be addressed in the Oregon Electrical uh, Specialty Code. So um, we follow the the model code is NEC in Oregon, and then we have a specialty code. And so uh, what the best practice is, that's a difficult question for me to say, because uh, if you're adding on to an existing system, uh, the problem would be your, you know, the thought would be that you're adding a system to the current code. You have something that might be 10 years old where it, there has no rapid shutdown. Uh, and the thought of a first responder walking up to a system, seeing that there is a rapid shutdown switch, but it only protects half the array uh, that they see it as, you know, what they see as half the array, uh, that becomes very difficult. Um, and so, you know, I would say signage, um, but it's really difficult to to clearly indicate that. So uh, one of the attempts here in Oregon is to actually require some level of rapid shutdown on existing systems, um, which I think is it's a difficult thing to argue against. The hard part for me is the execution of it, uh, given where our industry is going with um, module-level rapid shutdown, we're not going to have. So if you're going to bring an old system up to date, then you're going to have to remove every single module add uh, equipment, so you're likely introducing more problems than you're going to potentially solve. And then there's also the option of doing some sort of rapid shutdown on the exterior output of the the system. But um, to say that there is a quote unquote best practice, I think that's difficult. Um, If there are options of adding some level of rapid shutdown to the output of the system, I think that's great. Um, Just so that it's not, you don't have vastly different systems um, if you're adding onto it. Uh, Short of that, you know, hopefully, some real clear signage uh, to to get the first responders and um, and Matthew may have some input on you know signage as first responders go um, because it's very you know you don't want to create something that's a small book for them to read in order to know what's going on when they're on site.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll I'll just say that um, <clears throat> one of the challenges with codes is not being too prescriptive. Um, I think when it's performance based it works better because there's always an installation that's unique and that trying to follow the letter of the code sometimes can result in miles of more conduit and, you know, disconnect some crazy location away from the array. And so that's not necessarily the goal. I think, you know, if the industry and AHAs understand the intention, which is to try and provide um, uh, accessible disconnect location Um, marking that is reasonable. Marking has become a real challenge. It's, you know, when I teach firefighters, you know, I would use pictures of installations that would have so many red labels on it. It's just overwhelming. Um, And so ultimately, I think that we're getting to a place where there's more automation um, for the safety features. Um, That's the goal. I think trying to train every firefighter is a completely unreasonable expectation. And that's always been my Vision from you know a decade ago is trying to put some of these safety features um into the system design into the the code so the fire service doesn't even need to have any training um or need to read the labels um The execution of that's sometimes challenging, but I think that's the ultimate goal
2: hmm
0: yeah. Um, well, let's let's yeah, Vaughn, go, go ahead.
2: Can I jump in on that, Tom? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there are kind of two sides to two pieces to this. I guess you know one is kind of what the, what is the technical solution, but I think also there's what's the what are the relationships and 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 how do you go about doing this? I mean, we had this come up two weeks ago where, you know, we had a non-rapid shutdown system on an old barn. um, you know, and we talked to the fire chief first, right? Find out what, what is, what are your concerns? What, uh, you know, come to find out they had very little expertise at all with solar, which opened a door to create a relationship and help increase, right? Their knowledge in that. Um, and then talk to the state electrical inspector who, you know, is the, who is the HJ for that particular job. And there, you know, theirs was just kind of a hard and fast, you gotta do the letter of the law. So we just decided not even to put it on the roof just because it would create too much uncertainty and talked with the customer about it. But I think those relationships are really critical, especially in markets where they there's not a critical mass of expertise and experience, right? So uh, Maine, we have so many small municipalities, many code inspectors, you know, a lot of volunteer firefighters. And it's really important to have those conversations early and to check in because those could be expensive from the contractor side. Uh, there could be some expensive assumptions in there. Uh, you know, should someone come in at the end and say, well, <laughs> that's not going to, that's not going to do, do me what I need it to do. Um, there's not a cheap, you know, getting to Ryan's point, as far as retrofitting old systems, there's not really inexpensive solutions to to fix that, fix that problem.
0: Yeah. Great. Rebecca, why don't, why don't we bounce over to you? Um, and I did mention that I was going to you know, have a trivia question where where is Vaughn located? You, you might have heard that in his answer, but if anyone knows, just throw it inside the, the chat there. Where is Vaughn sitting right now based on the, his sign? Rebecca, um, alternate solutions for module-level rapid shutdown. What, what are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, so obviously this has been a huge topic of conversation for the past two code cycles. Um, with many, many interested parties. And I think that um, you know, Matt was possibly alluding to it when he said that you know, performance rather than a prescriptive path might be an easier approach here. And one of the things you'll start to hear more about is um, UL 3741, which is a new UL standard for PV hazard control, which is going to be, um, you'll see it in 690.12 as an option for um, rapid shutdown compliance inside the array boundary. And, you know, while it's not – and I do think that UL3741 opens up the window for more performance-based ways to comply. And so I think we're going to see systems that are listed UL3741 that may look a little different than what we think of as the typical, you know, module-level shutdown um, with, you know, different approaches to safety, different approaches to even voltage levels. Um, You're not going to have those strict those precise you know voltage level constraints for 3741 systems and so I think we'll start to see a lot more of that in the in the next few years and I don't know Matt if you have if you have anything to add if you've seen any movement on that front but it definitely there's been a lot of work done on that standard in the past couple of years and I think Matt and I are both on that on that standards technical
4: so um, let me let me just say that I in my role with Pacific Northwest National Labs um, know i lead their energy storage safety codes and standards so i've shifted from the pb world to the energy storage world so i'm not on that STP anymore but what i would like to say since a lot of folks on this call probably don't know what 3741 is is it is a um product standard that like rebecca says more performance based the idea behind it was to identify what the shock risk was for firefighters wearing ppe and then based on that basic voltage, essentially, and current availability, have a system be below those levels. Um, So it'll be very interesting to see what kind of products come out around that. I think there'll be many that will say, okay, well, we're comfortable using this type of, you know, module level control device, we've used it for years, we'll continue in that path. There'll be others that will seek to use, you know, continue to use string inverters and then have a system that provides those lower levels of voltage and current. But that's essentially what 3741 is. Um, And I think a lot of us are very interested to see what products come out um, to to meet that.
0: Great. Matt, why don't we stay on you for a minute? Um, There's a question. How is PV rapid shutdown addressed in codes and best practices when there is a a battery energy storage system to keep the PV on during an outage?
4: Okay, so codes often lag technology. And uh, so when rapid shutdown was first uh, developed, we had to clearly delineate where the boundary is for a PV system versus an energy storage system because the energy storage system that might be there for backup does not know if a firefighter has shut off the main breaker or if the grid has dropped due to a tree down the line. And we wanted that backup system to continue to be able to operate. So the original discussion was uh, a separate initiation of a shutdown of the battery was acceptable. So you'd have your rapid shutdown initiator for the PV system, but then if there was also an energy storage system, that would require an an additional initiation. I think some of the trends that we're seeing from manufacturers, um, and it's a positive trend, is to try and incorporate um, a signal from that initiator to also address the battery. I think that that's a positive trend, but the codes don't require that. So for right now, um, the codes will require not only initiate for the PV system, but a disconnect for the energy storage system. And, and that disconnect would have to be outside. Um, so for right now, that that's what's required, but I think the technology is moving in a direction where it'll be a single initiator. Um, so I, okay. I, yeah, hopefully that helps. Yeah,
0: Rebecca, do you want to jump in?
3: Yeah, I, I hope that everybody on the call has taken a look at the figures that are at the very top of 690, um, 690.1 informational note is an informational note figure, which means that it's not enforceable, but it is. They're super useful, um, and so basically, I, I think the really useful thing about those diagrams is that they call out the PV system disconnect in all kinds of different um, system topologies, and Anything in 690 only applies, you know, before the PV system disconnect. And one of the reasons we really wanted to include those diagrams in Article 690 is because of a lot of confusion about where rapid shutdown was meant to be enforced. Um, You know, and so this question comes up a lot about does rapid shutdown apply to multimode inverter output circuits? Does it apply to the energy storage system? Um, And if you take a look at those diagrams, I think it definitely helps clarify that rapid shutdown is really very specifically limited to PV system circuits um, up to, you know, depending on, you know, A or B or what option you're following. But it's really, you know, there's a, there's a constrained applicability to rapid shutdown. Um, but like Matthew said, there are also requirements for readily accessible disconnects for energy storage, but that is a, you know, a different category than rapid shutdown. But those are great diagrams. You know, if you haven't scrutinized them, I really, uh, I really like those diagrams.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, Rebecca, well well let's move off of rapid shutdown and stay with you though, um, but we got another audience question, and I believe you have some slides for this, which Jessica is going to queue up but uh your your opinions interpretations on bonding PVAC disconnects for supply side interconnections and whether an EGC is required And just yeah, you know, so this go, is a go ahead
3: this is a super interesting topic that. Um, So, so Matt and I are both on co-making panel four, and we must have spent, I would say, almost a whole day talking about this in the the second draft meeting. It's something that we know has caused an enormous amount of confusion among installers and inspectors all around the country because the rules were just not clearly defined. It was really hard to figure out what to do. Um, Just, you know, reading 230 and 250 and 690 in the electrical code, it was almost impossible to figure out what the co-compliant thing to do was. And so we spent a lot of time working on this in the 2020 code cycle. And unfortunately, what happened was that the language that the code panel agreed upon um, made it through all the way to the final second draft and then um, was deleted basically at the very last minute um, mm-hmm. through some, you know, things like that happen in the code making process. And so I wanted to, um, you know, if we can share that language and also Ryan has a great diagram that I think illustrates what the code making panel um, decided upon, so it's, a, it's, you know, one, it's one slide, click, 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 click down one slide, sorry. Um, so this is the language that um, was voted on and balloted by the co-making panel after a lot of conversation. And so the too-long-didn't-read version of this is that you do not want a second bonding point in your PV system disconnect. That is what we decided. We decided it was safer to keep the grounded conductor and the grounding conductor separate until you get back to the service entrance. And so that's that highlighted last sentence there. No connection shall be made between the supply side binding jumper and the grounded conductor at the disconnecting means. Um, So this is for supply side connections. This is a supply side TV source disconnect. Um, And if you're not familiar with supply side binding jumpers, um, they look and feel and act a lot like equipment grounding conductors but they are sized a little bit differently per 250-102. Um, and so that my recommendation, if your inspector doesn't, hasn't made their mind up about how you should do this, my recommendation would be to size and install a supply-side bonding jumper from your PV disconnect to the service entrance main bonding point. Brian's um, got a great diagram of this we can look at. Size it per 250-102 and don't bond in the PV system disconnect. Um, So Ryan, I'll I'll let you uh, take over and talk through your diagram here, but I, I, the coping really came to consensus on this and after a lot of discussion. We, we think this is really the safest and best approach for this.
1: Yeah, and so this is a diagram my team has put together and we we use this when we're talking when we're doing our code uh, discussions as well and I, something I like to say when I'm talking about this slide specifically, um, I, I say it only half jokingly is, and I think Rebecca, you were in the room when I, when I give this example of sitting in a room with 10 people uh, talking about this very topic, uh, everybody gives their opinion. And by the time this has gone full circle, you have 12 different opinions, uh, because undoubtedly somebody's changed their mind on, on what they think is the right answer here. Um, and so, I was really excited when I heard that NEC was going to basically give us finally give us some some definitive uh, answers or options at least on how to do this, uh, and was slightly disappointed. And when it, when the final version came out, it was cut that language uh, that Rebecca showed us was cut. Uh, and so this is what I've promoted um, and and had people do. So what to the point of. To bond or not bond so over there in the PV system disconnect we're keeping the neutral and ground separate and then in the main service panel is where that bond happens so that's really the the big gist of, of all of this. Um, I was actually going to ask Rebecca the, the question that came up because I, I, I always talk about um, how we got so close in the code making panel on in the uh, into the 2020 code Um where where's the best place to go find that draft language uh, if we're talking to with an inspector so we can say, see, we were oh so close, but at the 11th hour it got pulled out on, um, is there, does NFPA keep that on their website or is there a way to, to access that?
3: Yeah, yeah, they definitely do. So you can go uh, onto the NFPA web, website under NFPA 70, you'll find um, you know all of the actions that happened in the last code cycle. And if you look under the, the second draft ballot, for co-making panel four, you'll find that language, and you'll find the voting record, and you'll also find um, the one negative vote. You'll find the commentary on, you know, why there was one negative vote. So I think that's, and there's also a lot of supporting commentary. So I think that's um, that's something useful. And I can, Tom, I can share it with you if you wanna, if you wanna make it accessible.
0: Sure. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, Maybe we can touch on this question real quick before we move on. This is kind of in the grab bag category, but for Rebecca, let's stay on you. For 1,200 amp services or greater, can the main service disconnect circuit breaker act as the PV disconnect instead of a fused blade disco? Rebecca, I think you're muted. You're laughing and talking, but we can't hear you.
3: Sorry. Yeah, I'm going to go out on the limb here and say no. I think there might be more to this question than it looks like. Uh, it, I think there might be something about rapid shutdown behind this question. But basically, um, if you look at 705.12a, it requires that each source, PV source, have a dedicated OCPD and disconnect, meaning that your system source disconnect can't be the main disconnect because you need a dedicated disconnect. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you couldn't use the main disconnect as your rapid shutdown initiation device, but your PV source is going to require a dedicated, its own dedicated disconnect. Um, so my answer would be no. And I would also just throw out there something that people often get hung up on with large services is not to forget that with a service that's greater than or equal to 1,000 amps, there's also going to be ground fault protection requirements which can make it trickier to even have a load-side connected PV system. Um, there will be, it will be necessary to get manufacturers um, instructions that actually say that you can do a load-side connected PV system is typically what happens. So I'd be curious to hear what Ryan or Vaughn think about this one because that, my immediate reaction was like, I kind of think maybe this is actually asking about a rapid shutdown initiation device, but I'm, I'm gonna leave it at no, just make it simple.
1: Yeah. I would agree to call it the PV system disconnect. Um, I, I would agree with you there, Rebecca, and say no. Initiation device for rapid shutdown, sure. Um, but then the other part of this, and I get hung up on, well, not hung up, but I, I say this a lot in classes and things. Um, You're know, looking at the definition of a PV system, that's an Article 100. Uh, and then the PV system disconnect gets attached to the PV system. So we're, we're talking about two different systems, really. Uh, so if I'm understanding the question correct, um, I would be all on board with what Rebecca said.
0: Okay, and I realize I should have posted that question to everyone in advance, but it's there in the chat if you wanna look at what we were talking about. Um, But let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about products and manufacturers. Um, We got a question about, in the past, we've seen code updates effectively eliminate manufacturers from participating in the market. Should we anticipate this happening as states adopt the 2020 NEC? And throw that out there. Anyone want to jump in on that one?
4: Don't all speak. (laughs) So I'm 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 uh, scratching my head a little bit. Um, I'm not familiar with where the code has eliminated manufacturer, and I'll take a stab that what the submitter might be meaning is that is rapid with rapid shutdown. It was in. Are they feeling that it's eliminating string inverters? Is that what's behind that question? And if that's the case, let me just say that it's not the intention of the code to choose winners and losers. It's, to, it's totally driven by safety. And um, the industry is responsible for responding to market demands and complying with codes. So I think that's how I would address that one.
0: Vaughn, mm-hmm. bon, did you want to jump in there?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would assume the question would have to do with when rapid shutdown first came out and manufacturers struggled to get an OEM product out in the market uh, at the times that things were adopted. So yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure if that's the question, if it is, I mean, do you all folks see any other technology changes that might be a dramatic, maybe the question would better be, are there any dramatic shifts that are coming that manufacturers would have to run to catch up to? to be able to stay competitive in the market.
0: Yeah, there's another question kind of related. The 2020 NEC, does it require the development of, of new products in the market?
4: Again, let me just say that I think when Rapid Shutdown first came out, um, you know, the products that were currently available were either microinverters or DC optimizers to, to meet that, that code. And I think that that, Created a lot of tension, um, and it wasn't necessarily favoring any particular manufacturer. But since that language came out, there's a number of products that can provide that ability, whether or not they are product of choice for installers or have a track record of reliability. Um, you know, that's that's another issue. But um, there there's not a um, an absence of products in the market. Um, I think one of the good examples there was um, arc fault detection. Um, At the time that that standard came out there was not um, existing arc fault breakers that could provide that and so that was a perfect example of there being a real bottleneck on products. Um, Right now I don't know that that's the case and to Vaughn what's coming down the line um, for manufacturers I think is going to be in the energy storage field. Um, so I don't want to jump off PV if we're still on that, but that, that's going to be a yeah. manufacturer's need to be very aware of.
0: Well, maybe let's, um, let, let's, talk, let's stay on you, Matt, and talk a, a little bit about a quote that we've been sharing on LinkedIn from you. And you said, the solar industry can recognize hazards and address them ahead of regulations with safety technology and better design. You want innovation to lead the way. Can you talk more about that? And we'll get into a little bit more about, you know, building the code and who can be involved in that process, but how is industry and innovation going to lead the way?
4: <clears throat> well, so I, let me, let me go to, um, you know, the the two products that I mentioned earlier, MicroInverse and DC Optimizers. They were first uh, developed to address a, um, either a binning issue with module output or shading performance issues. But as a side function of that feature was the ability to isolate an electrical, uh, you know, to bring down the voltage when, when the devices are off. So there was, an, a, there was a safety ability that was inherent in, in those devices. Now, not, not designed or listed for that, that came later. But I think that that was one example of where there's some innovation that could could help lead uh, lead safety. I think another one in the energy storage um, field is where manufacturers are looking towards um, equipment design, chemistry design, system design to provide a higher level of of fire safety into into their batteries. Um, you know, their early products and maybe products that don't have the engineering or development behind them might not perform as well in, in uh, the UL 9540A tests. And that's, that's kind of the threshold that we're at with energy storage is just starting to rapidly deploy them in the residential market. And uh, that's, a, that's a very precarious place, I would say, for the industry um, it's it's still very new. There's very few residential products, um, few that have gone through the 9540A, and that test is a large-scale fire test that's part of the overall listing. And so, um, I, I think that that's something that's an area where the industry is going to have to really step it up and be very innovative in ensuring that these products are very safe to be put um, inside uh, dwellings, which the industry has fought for in the code and it's in, it's in there. And, um, it's talking about getting in over your skis. That might be one area.
0: Yeah. Uh, safety is a, is a big concern. So let's just move into storage. Ryan, do you, do you have any, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you want to build off of what Matt said?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's, um, with our industry in general, it's, as Matt was saying, it's, um, we're innovating well before what the code can keep up with. And so, um, Trying to to find that balance uh, is important, um, but in a lot of ways, I mean, the code making panels can only do so much, and they're they're in there writing the 2023 code right now. Uh, it's due <laughs> very very soon, if not already. I mean, September is coming up quick, and so I mean, the the code making panels essentially three years behind the industry. And so what, you know, the, the changes we see just in energy storage alone to kind of keep on that topic. Um, it's important for us to, to not skirt the issue and to kind of shy away from it, but rather embrace it and and try and and make those changes in, in a positive way uh, so that the industry and the technology can, can be the leaders that are not waiting for the code to catch up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Matt, back to you on another question from the audience. What, what will be the impact of NFPA 855 on Resi and CNI solar and storage designing, pricing and installation?
4: So 855 is the standard for stationary energy storage. And um, NFPA, that, that particular standard um, is, will become adopted and enforceable in, in two ways. One, it's either a state that adopts the NFPA codes and that's their building and fire code. Um, The other one is it also informs the international fire code, which is the adopted code in the majority of the US. So there's there's an attempt at harmonizing the language between the two um, to help the industry have some consistency. Um, And the first edition was published this year, um, 2020. And we're currently working on the 2023 cycle right now. Um, and I think it's a very significant document um, in that it is trying to address some of the safety issues with certain technologies. The challenges are that it, it sometimes is overreaching for other technologies. So we're really trying to make sure that the, the risks are addressed for specific technologies without being too prescriptive. Um, And I would say that the release of the three public reports as a result of the APS incident, um, April 19, point towards some commonality gaps that really need to be addressed um, in fire safety um, in both suppression design, um, gas management, if there were thermal runaway, um, and then also um, education, training of responders, decommissioning plan. So it's a very significant document and it typically addresses larger systems. The fire code has many more requirements for uh, for larger systems than the residential requirements have. And I think that the the potentially gray areas that you can have some potentially large residential systems up to 80 kilowatt hours. um, And that's a significant amount of energy um, and it would not need to follow the fire code requirements. Um, so that's why I really caution the residential industry, um, to, um, I guess, I guess my, my advice is more to the manufacturers because you guys just want to install listed products and you should. Um, but the manufacturers really need to make sure these products are the safe as possible because they're going in our homes. Mm-hmm.
0: Does anyone want to jump in before I move us off of storage and into working with AHJs? Any other thoughts on storage? Yeah. Well, maybe let's talk a little bit about... um, you know, moving away from products and storage and, and how to work effectively with inspectors and AHJs. You know, everyone has their own horror stories, but, but Ryan, why don't we kick it off uh, with you. Um, what are some of the best practices about working efficiently and, and collaboratively with these groups?
1: So what I've found, uh, so I've done a lot of training over the years, and so I've had a lot of code officials in my courses, uh, as Rebecca and Matt both have, um, and I know Vaughn's done training as well. So the the big thing that I keep trying to, um, when I talk with installers specifically, is you know, the the inspectors, they have a honestly, an overwhelming position, they have to know everything about all systems, and they have to be able to go in and inspect something in 15 minutes and know the codes back and forth. And now we're getting, you know, combination electrical plumbing inspectors in some jurisdictions, we have inspectors that are third parties. um, So they can't even get on a roof, for example. And so they're doing PV inspections from the ground, um, which for good or for bad, that's happening. Um, but one of the things that I really encourage people to do, and I try and, you know, walk this as well in, on, in our business, we get, we do a lot of design work. And so we get a lot of interactions with contractors when their inspectors have questions. Um, a lot of times the inspectors will ask for a change, uh, on the system and they could be just dead wrong, honestly. And the, I think for a lot of people, the, the, um, the reaction is, okay, well, I'm just gonna do it. It's a small change. I'm just gonna do it. Get my green card and I'm just, you know, I can close this job out. Um, I really encourage people not to take that route because it, yes, it is probably the easiest, especially if it's a really small change, but at this taking the time, working with the the inspector, talking to them, taking the role of being an educator in this case uh, to show them, you know, how the interpretation or how the code doesn't apply uh, is just going to help that inspector down the road. They're just, you know, they won't do that in the future for one. Um, but then it's just going to make them, I think a better inspector, make them more aware. Uh, so that's one of my biggest things is when an inspector says, here's what it is. Um, don't just take it as gospel. Um, And the other part of it that I get and I'm amazed how much I get this is uh, an inspector. Well, you need to install a six ground. And well, why do I need to install a number six ground? And they just say, just because, and so pushing them a little bit harder of citing the code. Why, you know, okay, I hear you, but why, what's the, what's your justification. And so I think a lot of installers are reluctant to do that just because they have to work with those inspectors a lot and they don't want to honestly make them mad. They don't want to, you know, Start off, start off with on, on a bad foot. So, or, you know, sour that relationship. So taking it in a positive manner, not being aggressive about it, but at the same time, trying to be educational about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vaughn, you, you have lots of experience with this. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I like to just kind of step back and look at the human dynamics a little bit. Just in that there's like a natural tension and conflict that often exists between contractors and code officers, right? You've got code officers who are trying to make sure that they're protecting the health and safety of their charge, you've got contractors that are trying to, you know, function in a market. And what we found to be really helpful, I I started in the industry out in Montana where towns are few and far between, so we might only work in a few jurisdictions. And in that case, it's a lot easier to form those relationships and really be proactive. It's always nice to have a conversation on code when there isn't a project in front of a code official, just so can talk about generalities. We'll call during the sales process, right? Like we may have a project where, uh, you know, there's something that's out of the ordinary and, Asking permission versus begging forgiveness is something that code officials like a lot. And I think that it, it, it's inherently in your best interest to do it. And I, I think just generally, especially in markets that, are, that aren't mature, uh, where you don't have general code official knowledge across the board, uh, if you can become a contractor that those code officials lean on for interpretation, that's the gauge of how well you form those relationships.
0: Yeah, Rebecca, jump in there.
3: Yeah, I, I think that it's important not to underestimate how complex some of the requirements in 690 and 705 have gotten over the years. In particular, I'm thinking about the 705.12b and the requirements for load site connections and bus bars and feeders. You know, it just we keep adding more and more and more options and rules and constraints and I'm also thinking about things like 690.9 over overcome protection which if you looked at it recently got a lot longer in the 2020 code but it didn't necessarily get a lot clearer and so I think you can get pretty bogged down in some of those rules and requirements particularly if you're an inspector who doesn't spend a lot of time on solar or maybe has spent no time inspecting PV systems and so I think like at the end of the day what you really need to think about is, you know, is this safe? Like, is What what I'm, what I'm doing here, what I'm trying to do, is it safe? You know, do I feel like I've met the safety requirements that are really at the core of what we're trying to do in 690 and 705? And if you're having an argument with your inspector about, you know, whether your wire size is right or the overcome protection or your interconnection point, I think sometimes you just have to take a step back and think, like, is this a safe installation? And, you know, if it is or if it's not, those are really – you've got to get to the bottom of, like, what you're doing and why, because – you know, there's a lot of, I wouldn't call them loopholes, but there's a lot of different ways to apply the requirements in 690 and 705. And, you know, I think that you probably could, if you tried really hard, um, end up with an installation that wasn't safe, depending on, you know, what puzzle or path you follow through those requirements. And so I think at the end of the day, just think, you know, what I'm doing here, is it, is it—is it safe? Does it meet the requirements of, you know, the the safety of the building and the safety of the inhabitants of the building?
0: hmm Great thanks all for your thoughts there I'd like to look ahead a little bit as we start to wrap up the show. um you know, what does the next two years look like uh Ryan why don't we why don't we start with you here how are How are you seeing things play out? Are we continuing to get more and more prescriptive in particular for solar specific electric codes, or have we passed the tipping point to where things are more integrated and aligned with the electric code and solar requirements? you know I get are we on the right track? You know, for co- codes <laughs> to support and and not hinder the industry.
1: Um, that that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I would, you know, in general, I feel like, um, we're gonna continue. This is gonna continue to evolve. I mean, as we're seeing uh, NEC specifically um evolve on 690 specifically 705 uh as rebecca and matt have already said you know we have brand new codes we have brand new sections we have there's a lot that's still honestly being developed and so you know are we at that prescriptive point i i kind of feel like no just because the industry is so rapidly changing uh and it's just really hard for the codes to do that i mean the electrical industry we've been doing electrical installations for you know over 100 years now right so it's um the, the code and those, you know, our, our standard electrical systems, I would say, um, even those are changing pretty rapidly. At this point, we have some technologies that are crazy to me um, and it's kind of hard for the code to keep up. So, you know, I don't know, will we ever get there? I, I have a hard time seeing it, but, you know, that would be awesome if we did. But um, for the time being, for the next, you know, two years, definitely I would say no. Um, and then, You know, the codes are, you know, we're we're just writing new codes and we're getting new stuff coming in. So uh, I expect it to be helping the PV industry, um, but there's definitely going to be, you know, tripping up along the way uh, for a while yet.
0: Mm -hmm. Anyone want to jump in on that? I have a question for Rebecca about 2023 NEC, but any other thoughts on, you know, this balance of requirements in the electric code and what the next couple of years look like? Well, maybe I'll just, Rebecca, yeah, what's in store for 2023 NEC, 2026 CEC?
3: Yeah, so I, as I think Ryan mentioned, proposals are due for the 2023 NEC in about two and a half weeks, <laughs> which is that great, honestly, because we haven't gotten a lot of feedback from the field on the 2020 NEC, and so it's very hard to have all of our proposals written and ready um, in two and a half weeks, you know, and so I think people do the best they can. And when I say, you know, people, I really want to encourage everybody on the call to get involved. You know, if you have an issue with something that's in the code, you know, the way that it's changed is through a public process of public inputs. Um, <laughs> so the the public inputs are due September 10th. Like anybody on this call, any of you can put in a public input. And, you know, I would highly recommend that you do because, one of the things that happens, I think people are scared a little bit of this process because you think like your, your input or your proposal has to be perfect. Um, and it definitely does not have to be perfect. You know, what happens is when you put in a public input, it really opens up the topic or the section so that the code making panel can discuss it. And the stronger a substantiation you have for making a change, you know, the more likely that the code making panel is going to put some effort into working on that language, even if you're proposal isn't perfect, which of course none of them are you know, when they're initially made. And so if you've got a problem that you're always running into in the field or you know something that just hangs you up every time, please think about putting in a public input or send it to me, I can help you out with the process. But it's a very public process. Um, go to the NFPA website. It's really easy to get involved. So,
4: well, I want to add something to what Rebecca just said that's really important people understand. Um, if you don't submit something, the committee cannot create it without there being a public input. And even if it's not perfect for the first draft, it could be adjusted. But if it's not in there, um, then you can't introduce new language at the second draft. So it's way better to get something that's written poorly in at the first draft. So you know, don't worry about how it looks, just submit something and the committee will be able to to work with it. And again, if you can get a, uh, somebody to, to, you know, they reach out to like Rebecca that understands what you're trying to do, then they can help guide you through the rest of the process. But that's a really important part.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Um, Rebecca, just to go back to you real quick. So, you know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed when I look at a a number with a dot and other numbers and then get involved. I'm like, how do I get involved? What does it actually look like? Do you, do you show up somewhere? Do you, chat with other people how large are these bodies can you just describe what it looks like to participate in in making the code
3: yeah so sia um, the solar energy industries association has done a really good job of supporting a group called the pv industry forum which is totally open to anybody who cares enough about the code to come and join and so for the past i'd say four months the pv industry forum has had task groups so if you're really interested in grounding and bonding, or you're interested in rapid shutdown, they've had task groups um, working on public inputs. So as a consensus group, getting together once a week and saying, okay, we want to rewrite this or rewrite that, coming to consensus on decision making. Um, and that's a really easy way to get involved as a sort of newbie to the process, because you'll be sort of guided through um, how to approach this. So that's wrapping up, but there's still three weeks left. Um, so you can get in touch with Evelyn Butler at (laughs) SEA if you want to get involved. Um, That, I would say, is the easiest path into it. You can also just go straight to the NFPA 70 webpage, um, and Next Edition is a link there. You click on Next Edition, and it will take you right to submit submit a public input. Um, And it's actually – it's a program called TearView. It's actually, like, fairly intuitive, I would say. and it 'll sort of guide you through how to submit a change, but I would say the best the best way to get involved for the next code cycle um, is through the p v industry forum it 's probably the easiest way that 's i think uh, four code cycles ago is when I first got got involved through the p v industry forum
0: okay awesome well I, I want to start to wrap up here. There was a question that came in the in the q and a so if any of our guests have uh, have the ability to answer that question, that would be great. But um, you know, for our final question, I'd like to ask each of our guests to for their top three suggestions for solar contractors, kind of wrapping up what we talked about today to achieve the most seamless approval process from utilities and EHJs. So um, how, how to make that process as smooth as possible for our solar contractor audience. Um, but before I kick that off with, with Rebecca, I'd like to thank our guests. We have Rebecca Wren, solar engineer at Airbnb. Thank you for coming today. Ryan Mayfield from Mayfield Renewables. Thanks for joining us. Matt, great to meet you and have you on the show for the first time. He's a former fire chief and now advisor of Pacific Northeast National Laboratory. And Vaughn Woodruff, thank you as always, CEO of InSource Renewables. And the trivia question was, where is Vaughn located Uh, based on the sign here? Uh, Trick question, Vaughn is in Maine. Um, And then Jessica is going to post the other uh, Slack or I'm sorry, the other um, different trivia questions in the chat. So check for those answers. Um, so yeah, Rebecca, uh, let's kick it over to you. What are your What are your top three suggestions on uh, seamless approval processes for for codes, compliance, AHJs, all of it with with solar contract for solar contractors?
3: Yeah. Well, first, thanks, Tom, for inviting me. I've enjoyed being here with y'all. Mm-hmm. Top three. Let's see. So I would say, you know, make. sure I think probably education, can I just make that the whole top three, just making sure that, you know, you're educated about codes and standards, that your crew is educated, and also that your local AHJs are educated. So, you know, as Vaughn said, um, you know, reach out ahead of time, make sure that you're not jumping to conclusions, and be patient with your local jurisdictions, because a lot of them don't have a lot of funding. They have a lot on their plates. There's a lot going on. Solar is not always at the top of their priority list. So, you know, help them out with education where you can.
0: Yeah. And if everyone's going to say kind of the same thing, feel free to jump in <laughs> with your top suggestion for solar contractors, you know, in any of the kind of topic areas we covered. Ryan, why don't we hop over to you?
1: Sure. I'll, I'll just pile on that one just a little bit, just a, a yes on all that. Um, one of the things I like to point out is as solar contractors, you are going to know uh, going into the job if there's something a little bit different, more difficult um, supply side connection, for example, or uh, adding to services connects things like that, talk to the AHJ ahead of time. Um, And I think a big part of that is when you're asking the question, you can also be somewhat being in the educator role and leading that discussion. So it's not, you're not being reactive, um, not suggesting that you do anything to, um, you know, do something wrong by any means, but rather you are able to kind of help the the uh, inspectors see and interpret the codes in a lot of ways that we are as well.
0: Great. Yeah, Matt, last final suggestion, thought?
4: I I would uh, tag on to what Ryan had said earlier, that if you're encountering an AHJ that's incorrectly interpreting the code, you know, your margin on your jobs is very tight. You don't necessarily have the time, but what's really important is bringing that problem to the attention of maybe your local C chapter, because it's important that they understand where the gaps are in education and it can be addressed, not putting you on the spot um, at, a, at a different level. And that's been really effective. I did a lot of that when I was a private consultant um, all across the country and it, it was pretty effective. But once, once the heels are kind of dug in over a project, it's difficult to, uh, to move
1: forward effectively. It's a great idea. I never really thought about kind of getting an intermediary involved. That's
2: a great idea. We're all learning.
0: Vaughn, final thought?
2: Totally. I think uh, humility, while not necessarily valued in some realms in the world these days, is a really important one here when dealing with the AHJs. Uh, and that you know that helps to be a good learner so that you can make sure if you make mistakes, code can be hard to interpret. Um, be ready to make mistakes and learn from them. Um, it also goes a long way with the AHJs. I also think offering, you know, you can get the answer to the question you want based on what you ask for a question. And so rather than if there's something that's questionable and you're in a jurisdiction where it may be this way or that way, make sure you're well educated, but then offer solutions. Um, offer a solution that then can be the straw man or straw woman to put down and, and go at it with. And I think just generally, you know, working in a territory is to make those relationships be visible some of this stuff you know it's it's going to be dictated coming down but states and municipalities go through code adoption processes themselves and so being vocal in those when you see something that may not be uh, specifically you know here in maine uh, off-grid for instance we're increasing risk with some of the adopted principles and it may just say this is something here in our state that we really need to, to pay attention to so that we're actually Dealing with the health and safety issues that we want to so
0: Awesome well that's all we have the time for today make sure to check the links in the chat for our financing webinar for a mindfulness session this Friday come out and chill out with us on Friday it's a really nice relaxing time and our generac webinar um, on September 3 Thank you to all of our guests. It's been enlightening uh, for me. I'm slowly uh, inching towards a little bit of knowledge in in this topic area. So I appreciate it and great seeing you all. Um, Thanks for everyone for attending and joining our solar community. And uh, yeah, we will see you next time. Bye.